The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes 6:10 through 7:14. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The, wise of, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, It's my joy to preach to you the word of God this morning. I wanted to draw your attention really quick. Um, Each week... Um, Mackenzie and the team put together this little worship guide and it's in the back. I think we've got two or so in each, each back of the chairs. And, um, this has got all of our announcements and everything in it, but it's also one of my favorite things is it's got all of, um, our worship. So it's got the songs that we sing. It's got the confessions, the professions of faith. And you can do a couple things with this. Number one, if you get here early, (gasps) if you get here early, you can actually go over it. And read what we're going to be singing and read what we're going to be praying. And you could say, Lord, help me believe this. And the other thing you could do is you can take this with you and use it as a devotional throughout the week. You can pray through some of the prayers that um, myself and Joel, our worship leader, uh, we sit down together every week and we pray over and we script out this worship gathering um, after we've spent time in the word. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about it and we want to to be helpful for you in shaping your prayer life and shaping your devotional life. So I just wanted to throw that out there. That's all I got. Then I'm going to go ahead and pray. We're going to get into it this morning. Um, If you want to, you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. I thank you for the air conditioning that's working working well in this building. Uh, I thank you for all of the good things that you've given us. I thank you for these people that are here I trust that they're here this morning because they want to hear from you. And Father, I know that you never disappoint. You always speak to us. You always, um, you've given us your word and so we can study it and we can hear it and we can know your thoughts and we can know your ways. And so I, I ask that you would help me as a shepherd this morning, that you would help me lead your people to feast on your word. Uh, I pray that you'd give me grace. I thank you uh, for the songs that were sung this morning. I thank you for your glorious grace. I thank you for the person in the work of Jesus Christ. Father, would you think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords this morning? Would it be all of you and none of me? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're in the book of Ecclesiastes, the realest book in all the Bible. All right? Many times people come to church and they say, he's talking about something. He's not talking about real life. Well, Ecclesiastes is talking about real life. And many of us, we might be getting a little tired of real life, but it's good for us. And so I want you to open it up, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, it should be pretty much right in the middle of your Bible, and this is written by Solomon, one of the wealthiest men to have ever lived, Um, I'll just say it, one of the most sexually promiscuous men to have ever lived, 
Uh, this guy had it all, tried it all, and now at the end of life, he's writing, he's looking back over his life, and he's trying to help some of us not make some of the mistakes that he made. Now listen, I'm going to, for many of us in this room, <laughs> can you remember that horrible season of life called puberty? Young folks, I'm sorry, but it's in the future. It's coming up. Do you remember? Do you remember how one day that you were a kid with almost no cares in the world? You could wear sweatpants every day. It didn't matter. You didn't care. Mom had to look and go, you can't wear that to the store. You're like, why? I'm not naked. It doesn't matter, right? You had no cares in the world. And then out of nowhere, everything begins to change. Your armpits start to stink. It's as if they're warning you, things are about to get weird around here. Your hormones start to rage. You just randomly go from psychopath to, you know, crying uncontrollably. Rage, anger at levels you've never experienced before. You start caring about other people, like what other people think of you, the opposite sex for the first time in your life. But simultaneously, so right when you start caring about them, your body begins to betray you. You want to impress, but pimples now mark your face. If you're a guy, like your eyebrows start to grow together as random hairs just start sprouting on your face. And your voice fluctuates somewhere between Batman and Boy Wonder. <laughs> For the ladies among us, you gals have a totally unique experience as your bodies change and the menstruation cycle begins, right? Now, this is a traumatizing experience in life for all of us, or most of us, but it's manageable if you know it's coming. If your parents sit you down beforehand and say, things are about to get weird, right? It's traumatizing, but you can get through it if you keep your head, if, if you grow in wisdom as, you're, as everything else is growing, right? Grow in wisdom as everything else is growing. But for the unprepared, puberty can be devastating as they think, what is wrong with me? What is going on in my life? They're unprepared for this internal storm that begins in puberty. Here's why I bring this up. Puberty is not the only season of life where our experiences leave us asking, what is going on? What is wrong with me? There will also come a day for most of us for many of us, it comes as what's been known now in the modern world as a midlife crisis. It's like second puberty. All of a sudden, you're looking at your life and you're looking in here and you're not satisfied like you thought you were and things start happening and you're confused and you think, you know what? Another woman or another man and a smaller, faster car will solve what's going on inside of me. Right? Sounds foolish when we say it like that. That's usually what happens. There will come a day for many of us, it comes when the kids leave the house. And we spent the last decade or two only thinking about them and their survival and their, their good. And now all of a sudden they're gone. And now all of a sudden we have the big question, whoa, whoa, who am I now? Husband and wife look at each other. Who are we now? Who are you? For God, I've been living with you for the last 20 years. I guess we should probably like each other again. See, Solomon is sitting us down and he's having the puberty talk with us or maybe the midlife crisis talk or maybe the menopause talk. He's sitting us down and he's having the life under the sun talk with us to prepare us to finish our life well. And like usual, he's going to give us two options. Now here it is. First option is the way of the fool. And the second is the way of wisdom. 
Now, these are important biblical categories that most of us probably don't spend any time thinking about. I bet your brain doesn't operate in the biblical categories of foolish and wise very often. We usually only think in the categories of right and wrong. And this gets us in a lot of problems, okay? It brings a lot of issues to us because thinking in right and wrong, it's not bad. Those are good biblical categories that we need to have, but they're insufficient categories. For a person who wants to live a life that flourishes, okay? And a life that flourishes means a life lived close to God I mean, you're talking like spiritually, you have an intimacy with God, you know God, God knows you. Physically, you live in a place that you are honoring God with your body. Um, Financially, relationally, occupationally, like any of us can be really good at one category, like you're killing it at work, but relationally you just... Your, your, your relationships are, are, are shallow or they're non-existent. God wants us to flourish in all of these areas, all of these categories. And in order for us to do that, we need more categories than just right and wrong. We need the categories of wisdom and foolishness. And listen, as parents in here who want to raise children who flourish, who love God, live well, and learn how to lead a family, have a meaningful career that is a blessing to the world, we have to teach them the biblical categories of wisdom and foolishness. There are a lot of things in our world that are not bad, they're just foolish. And if you've ever got pinned by your kid, what's wrong with it? It's not a sin. You need the category of foolishness. See, Solomon has already told us two weeks ago that God has no pleasure in fools. That alone should cause us to ask, what is a fool? What is foolish behavior? Because I don't want anything that would keep God from taking pleasure in me, God enjoying me, or in my children. Now, just this week, a couple in upstate New York were forced to sue their 30-year-old son because he refused to move out of their basement. They gave him an official eviction notice a month ago, but he said no. So they had to take him to court, and the judge ruled in their favor. Now, is it morally sinful to live in your parents' basement as an adult who is fully capable of living on their own? Absolutely not. But is it foolish? Absolutely. Yes. See, today, Solomon is going to give us some words of wisdom here. It's going to feel a little different than the sermons leading up to this. He's going to give us some things we can do to walk in the way of wisdom that leads to a flourishing life rather than the way of fools. And this is what I think he's saying. Fools cannot deal with reality with life under the sun the way that it is. So they try to escape it at all costs. They want to take the easy road every, at every opportunity. And this road, this easy road, if you wanted to classify it, it could be called the road of escapism. Escapism is the tendency to seek distraction and relief from unpleasant realities especially by seeking entertainment or engaging in some kind of fantasy. But Solomon says, the wise open their eyes, they take a long look at life under the sun, and they move forward in life here with a gospel optimism. Now, a gospel optimism is a way of looking at life that keeps the whole story of God in mind at all times. It can handle good things as gifts from God, our creator, and it can suffer through bad things with the knowledge that God is the redeemer who is working all things for our good. It can thank God for creating everything good, but also remember that it was us or our federal head, Adam, who ruined the world. But it is also Jesus who is making all things new and one day, In the coming future, the curse of sin will be a distant memory in our minds that makes the new heavens and the new earth that God is preparing for us all the more sweeter and enjoyable. 
So a gospel optimism lives life with a creation understanding. God made everything good. The fall, we've screwed it up. Redemption, Jesus is right now currently. He's lived the perfect life. He died the death that we deserve. He's making all things new. And restoration, one day in the future, God, all things are going to be united in God. And there will be no more pain and there will be no more suffering. There will be no more bad days. But here, having a gospel optimism takes real work on our part. First, we have to understand the story that I just explained, the story of God, which is taught to us in the scriptures. But then we also have to remember it or rehearse it to ourselves as often as we can. We have to work hard to see all of our world through that lens and to try not to escape from the difficulty in our lives by some other means. So Solomon here is going to begin, this is where he's going to take us this morning. So I want us to look at chapter 6, verse 10. And this is, what, this is how Solomon begins. Whatever has come to be has already been named. So he's saying everything that exists is here because it has already been named. What's he doing? Solomon is beginning our discussion this morning, drawing our eyes back to God. When he says, been named, we should say, well, named by who? It's been named by God. Here Solomon is thinking about Genesis 1 and 2, where God named creation. He said, this is light, this is day, this is sky, this is earth, this is seas. To name something means to make it exist. Therefore, God has predestined and foreordained everything that happens in the present. He names it. And Solomon says, before we talk about life under the sun again, I want to draw your attention back to the one who's above the sun, who's naming everything under the sun. He goes on, he says, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Here it is. It is known what man is. Well, what is man? He's already told us God knows that we are weak and finite. He says, you are dust and to dust you shall return. And because of our weakness, because of our finiteness, we cannot argue with God. That's what Solomon's talking about. He's saying everything in our day has already been named and God knows that we're dust and that he's not able to dispute with one. That he's, so he's saying, why are you arguing with God? about what's going on in your life. Romans 9.20 says this, but who are you, O man or a woman, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? If you've ever been through puberty, you've said that. Why did you make me like this? You can argue with God all you want, but Solomon says, look at this answer here. Verse 11, the more words, the more vanity. That vanity means vapor, right? More meaning, it's not really meaningless, but it's here today, gone tomorrow. And what is the advantage to man? It's not going, here's what he's saying. Arguing, at, arguing with God because of the circumstances in your life is not going to help you in any way. You can be frustrated about your parents. You can be frustrated about the neighborhood you grew up in, the lack of opportunities. You can be frustrated about the color of your skin. You can be frustrated about the, the circumstances of your life. And you can take that and you can argue with God, but it's not going to help you in any way. It's not going to be beneficial to you anyway. Then Solomon sets up a couple of rhetorical questions that serve to open up today's lesson for us about life under the sun. Here it is. Look. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? Who knows? Now this is, this, doesn't this frustrate you? What, what school, and people always ask, what school does God want you to go to? Should you move? Should you stay? Should you take the promotion? Solomon says, what do you know what's going to be good for you? Some of us, right? Some of us, the home run 
is going to be really good for us. It's going to boost our confidence and we're gonna you know, live out God's purposes for us and we're gonna give his glory. Some of us, the strikeout is actually what's good for us. Who knows what's good? Should you have more kids? Is that good? Should you, well, you can't have less kids. Should you stop? <laughs> We've all contemplated that a couple times. Do you know, is the home run that leads to pride better than the strikeout that could lead to humility? What's good for your child right now? Is it a coach that screams at them and demeans them? That happens, and sometimes it's like the best experience of our life for some men in here, if you've ever had that. Or is it the coach that uplifts them, right? How can we look at our own life and say, what is good for us? What do we need right now? And much less look sometimes for, at our kid's life. The second thing, so he says, who knows what's good? So who knows what we really need? Do you know what you need? Could you, do you have the foolishness to say, yeah, I know exactly what I need. I know exactly what's for my good. Right? I don't think any of us do. Secondly, he says this, for who can tell, who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Not only do we not know what's good for us most of the time, we don't know the repercussions after we die and what's going to go on after that, right? We don't know what, you don't know what your family's going to do after you pass away. You don't know what your business will do after you put it in the hands of somebody else. You don't know what the money that you spent your life raising is going to do when you give it over to your descendants. So here he asks these two questions. Who knows what's good? And who can tell what's going to happen after you die? And now listen, the answer, the expected answer to both is this. No one but God. No one but God. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a sense that when I hear those things, God has named everything that's coming. You don't know what's good for you. You don't know what's going to come after you. Who are you? Well, I'm dust. Well, there's a sense when I hear that, right? If no one knows what's good, no one knows what's going to come after me, then I guess it doesn't really matter how I live today. I could take a nihilist worldview and say everything is meaningless so I can live now however I want to live. Who cares? What does it matter? It's all been named anyhow. See, many of it accused Solomon of having this worldview. But Solomon is not a nihilist, nor is he even a pessimist. A pessimist here just throws up his hands and says there's no use in even trying. But that isn't what Solomon does. He poses these questions. He brings us to the brink of our own weaknesses, our own inability to understand life and understand what's going to come after us. He brings us to the brink, and he doesn't push us over the edge in meaninglessness. Just when you think he's about to give up in despair, he doesn't. Solomon switches tactics and goes on to give a string of what's called Proverbs that focus on the words better than. And actually in Hebrew, I like it. Hebrew, it's this is good, but this is more good. Now, I want you to see what he's doing here. You don't know what's good in your life. Who knows what's good? Well, I know what's good and what's more good. That's what Solomon's going to do. He's going to paint for us, when you don't know what to do, choose the wise path, not the foolish path. All right? He's going to help us out here. Now listen, even though it may feel like everything is meaningless in your life right now, and you might as well just do what feels good in the moment, Solomon says, no, do what's better. Do what's more good. Let's look at verse, chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better, so a good name is more good than precious ointment. Now, I want you to think about this. How long does it take for a person to create a name for themselves? It depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about a good name, it takes a long time. If you're talking about a bad name, probably one semester. You know, good reputations take years to build, even decades to build, but it only, but here, here's why he's saying it's 
more good to focus on your building a good name for yourself than on precious ointments. Precious ointments just take a little bit of money. You, you can't buy a good name for yourself. Solomon says, so use it. Use your time. Focus. It's better to build a good reputation. And look at this. This is when he gets into some heavy stuff. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, when I read that, the first thing I said is, how is the day of death better than the day of birth? And I got three, I got three reasons. Number one, when you're born, basically, everything in your, basically, you're born, and many of us would say, you know what, I think the day of birth is better than the day of death. Well, I think when we say that, typically, we're thinking about potential, that this child has got a lot of potential when it comes into the world, right? But I think Solomon's using kind of the, the reverse of that logic. And he's saying, it's better, the day of death is better because that is the day of fulfillment. See, in Christianity, the day of birth, we have no idea what's going to come out in front of this child. We don't know what your, this child's going to be, what this child's going to experience. When they pull you out, I mean, this is just all potential, but when we get put in the ground, when we get put in the ground for the Christian, this is the fulfillment of everything that we've hoped for. We get, our, we get to meet God, right? We get to be free of sin. We get to see Jesus face to face. When Christ comes back again, we get our new body to live in a new heavens and a new earth with. And so for the Christian worldview, death is better than the day of birth because the birth is fulfill the birth is potential and the death is the fulfillment of our salvation secondly uh, death is better than the day of birth because on the day of birth it's like looking out into the windshield okay it's like the windshield and the day of death is the rear view we're holding this sweet precious baby in our hands but think about how much pain is ahead of this child now, we're happy and we're not thinking about that, but there's a lot of pain. There's broken arms, there's broken legs, there's broken hearts, there's loss, there's grief, there's mourning, there's betrayal. For this child, we've welcomed him into a broken world and there's a lot of pain in the future, right? But on death, all of that pain for the Christian is in the rearview mirror, right? So death is actually better than the day of birth. And then lastly, this one's kind of maybe a little bit unique. The only thing that's said of you when you come out of that, your mother's womb is, I think he's got his mama's nose, right? It's, you have no reputation. No, no, no one knows if you're going to be a complete idiot or you're going to be the next Einstein. They just look at they're like, well, everything's there. <laughs> Praise God for that. But on the day of your death, you have a reputation. What will be said of you on the day of your death? What reputation will you have built? Will, will people stand up at your funeral, I guess that's step one, that people are there, right? Because you've made some meaningful contribution to their life. Will they say of you, this guy or this gal loved Jesus? She walked with God. She was hospitable. She welcomed outsiders in. She lived her life for the honor of God. She was kind and gentle. Or will they say, oh, this guy loved the bears, What's going to be said of us? There's this interesting snippet in the New Testament in Acts chapter 13 where the writer, Luke, is thinking about David who lived hundreds of years before. And this is kind of uh, his 
eulogy in a sense. This is, how, this is his reputation. It says this in Acts chapter 13, verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, it means he died, and was laid with his fathers, and he saw corruption. This is literally saying, David, he served the purpose of God in his generation, and then he died, and he rotted, but it's, it's got a new, new body in the, in the new heavens and the new earth. This is his, this is what people knew him by. This is his eulogy. This is the reputation that he led. Even though he was a sinful man, even though he was broken, he loved God and he served the purpose of God in his generation. Solomon says, better is the day of death because you'll think about that and you should think about that right now. What's going to be said of you at your funeral? Solomon wants us to look forward to the day of our death and ask ourselves, listen, what, per, what type of person do I have to be right now for that to be said of me? Right? What type of person should I be right now? For one day, I will be dead. Do we think about that? But the fool... The fool wants to escape this reality and tries to push the reality of death out of their minds through numbing entertainment, neurotic business, and a host of other ways of means. Solomon wants us to do what's better. So he goes on. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Think about your death. Three, sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Now, I had a hard time with that this week. Um, I'm sorry, I, I skipped verse two. Let's go back. I'm sorry, I, I, I jumped in there. Verse two, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. He's literally saying, it's better to go to a funeral then go to a wedding. Now, is it good to go to a wedding? Absolutely. But it's better to go to a funeral. Why is it better? They serve food at weddings, not often at funerals. We dance at weddings, not often at funerals. They do. You had a reputation problem, right? Why is it better to go to the house of mourning? The, both are good, but the house of mourning is meant to make you think about the reality of life, death, suffering, and look to the one who is making all things new. See, it's in the house of mourning. There's no answers in the house of mourning but one. And that's God. Our hope is in God. Our hope is in the gospel. Our hope is in the story that this wickedness, this brokenness is going to make sense one day because he's making all things new. That God is aware of our suffering. He has experienced it in himself, in Jesus, and through Jesus, he is making it right. But if we only go to the house of feasting and we avoid the funeral, we can numb ourselves from reality by eating, drinking, and partying our life away. I've had friends who don't do funerals. Close friends pass away and they don't do funerals. Why? Because their worldview is so weak, it can't handle the reality that they're going to die. And if this is all there is and we're going to die, it can lead us into a very fragile state, right? Where we start thinking, none of it matters, I'll just do what feels good in the moment. But for the wise person, we can handle that. We can go into that. It's reality. And then look at verse Three, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Now, this one threw me for a loop this week. How is the sad face lead us to a happy heart? And this is it. Life is a serious matter. And it takes deep thought. It takes heart work. And it takes your serious face. What face do you have on when you go to a funeral? 
What face do you have on when you sit down before a test? What face do you have when you go and walk into the hospital room when you're visiting someone who's close to death? Right? What face do you put on when you have to talk to someone who is about to walk away from God and is about to walk down a path that ends in pain and darkness? I'll tell you what face. You put on your serious face, right? Because life demands we meet it with a level of seriousness because life is a serious thing. One stupid thing and we can be dead. We all see it in the news every year. Some stupid college freshman gets so drunk that he gets alcohol poisoning and kills kills himself, right? We see it every year. One act of stupidity, one act of foolishness has eternal consequences. So Solomon says, sorrow Literally, anxiety is better than laughter. Some things take your serious face and you need to approach it like that. I want to keep going. Verse four, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth or the house of partying. Here's what he's saying. Wise people step into difficult situations with others. Wise people step into broken marriages Wise people step into the house of mourning where grief and loss exists. But fools, look, try to escape from that reality. By, they don't want to ever want to think about it. Verse five. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Now listen, if we're, when we're walking in foolishness, It's not just death and mourning we run from. We run from any forms of discipline. We would rather have 10 fools, probably on social media, tell us how good we are, how beautiful we are, how strong and powerful of a woman we are, than one wise person rebuke us. They don't. Solomon's saying, how foolish of us. Sometimes it's the rebuke. Sometimes it's the rebuke that changes our heart and not the kind word. I remember one time I was a young man and I was just, I just came to faith and the, the pastor had given me responsibility and I was out having a good time on Saturday and I was responsible for this thing on Saturday night and I was running late because I didn't plan very well like most young people don't do. And I got there late and it was probably like my second or third time and I remember walking into the church hoping nobody's gonna notice that I could just sw- swoop down and take my position and do my thing. And I remember the pastor looking looking at me and going, do you want the job or not? And I was like, and 20 years later, I hear it in my head. And I have rarely been late to anything ever since. Now, we could argue about was that gentle and was that kind or was it, I don't really know, but it was good for me. It was good for me. And it helped bring some wisdom into my life. Instead of, oh no, yeah, I can make it. Yeah, we can do one more thing. I can make it there on time. No problem. And then not fulfill my responsibility, right? So Solomon says, the wise, it's better for the wise person to be rebuked than to hear just fools singing singing their praises. Verse six, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools snap, crackle, and pop. That's the opinion of fools literally on their way to dust and ashes, on their way to a wasted life. Verse seven. See, this is different. I know this is different because it's just proverb after proverb. Verse seven. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Now, what is this? Again, this is a form of escapism. A person, a rich person, wants to escape the reality and the responsibility that they owe to society, so instead they'll just bribe someone to get what they want. Verse eight, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Anybody can, parents, anybody can start something, right? 
but better is the end of a thing than the beginning of a thing. Like the kid can run upstairs to clean the room and when they come down 30 seconds later, right? Well, you started great. But the end of a thing is better than the beginning of a thing. Many of us, we make a lot of promises and a lot of rash things, but he's saying better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And look, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud of spirit. What is impatience? Impatience is a way of escaping reality and wishing things were different than the way things are right now. I can't handle my current circumstances. And so impatience rises up and it's an escape from reality. Verse nine, be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges. It lodges in the heart of fools. See, again, anger is a way of escaping reality. I have, here's reality. You can't control anyone. And that makes me very angry. When your kids remind you that you can't make them go to bed. You can't. You can try everything. They go to bed when they want to go to bed. And you know this, parent, because you will give them anything the third or fourth time. Right? You just, God, please. What do you want? A Lamborghini? I'll give it. Go to bed. You can't control them. And what often happens is anger. Our inability to control a person or control the situation and we lash out and we think that the anger of God can produce the right or the anger of man can produce the righteousness of God and we'll just get really mad and control the situation. No. Psalmist says, it's better to be patient. It's better than the proud in spirit. Verse nine, be not quick in your, or I did that one, verse 10, say not, why were, oh, oh. If you're over the age of probably 40, this one's for you. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now, what is that? Solomon's hitting on a lot of times when we get a little older and we're getting close to that second puberty that I was talking about, we start looking back on our life and on the world in nostalgia. And nostalgia is a lie. Nostalgia is a form of escapism by taking a vacation in the past instead of Grappling with the present or looking to the future in faith. You hear that? It's taking a vacation in the past. Oh, yeah, things used to be so much better back then. You're forgetting what it was like back then, right? Now, parents, moms, dads, you guys, the older ones, grandparents, you guys are great at this, right? As we're at the store with our children, some of us children on leashes, okay, and they're doing what they do and having temper tantrums when we really, it's really hard to control them in front of other people. Grandparents walk up and what do grandparents say? Remember these days. (laughs) They're the best in your life. And you're like, take them then, take them. (laughs) Right? This moment is not that. Like, I get it. You're thinking back and you're thinking about all the precious moments, all the good moments, all the meaningful moments. But you, your brain has a way in nostalgia of erasing the demonic moments. <laughs> he says, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Look right now, right here. And look forward in faith. Verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance, and it's an advantage to those who see the sun. Parents, we don't just need to try to raise good kids. We need to raise wise kids. Solomon, the Proverbs also says that folly is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of discipline drives it out of them. 
We need to drive the foolishness far from our children and not reward foolish behavior. Now I could go down the list of how many things when a child does something foolish and parents think it's funny and they reward it. Well, two-year-old foolishness looks looks a lot more dangerous when it's 16-year-old foolishness. And you can't reward foolishness their whole life and then expect them to be wise when they go off to college. Solomon says here we should leave two things to our children. One is wisdom and two is an inheritance. If we only give them a financial inheritance, we just fuel their foolishness and empower them to waste their life. Here's your inheritance. Spend 10 years at college, but never get a degree. Here's your inheritance. Travel the world. Here's your inheritance. Part of your life away. Solomon says, leave them some money, yeah, but leave them wisdom so they can enjoy that money in a wise and God-honoring way. 12, for the protection of wisdom, look, is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that, look, wisdom, look, why do I want wisdom? Wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Wisdom is a preservative for life. It gives us the ability to flourish in the midst of a world that is suffering under the curse of sin. But foolishness is corrosive. Its effect on our life and on our kids' lives is like like what the salt does that we put down our roads in the wintertime, what it does to our vehicles, that it, it makes them rust, it's corrosive and eventually ruins them. That's exactly what foolishness does to a person. Sometimes you can't put your finger on it and go, no, that's bad, that's a sin, that's evil. You just have, we have this huge category, that's foolish. And if you keep living foolish, you're going to destroy your own life. And then you're going to look back and go, what happened? You lived foolishly and foolishness is corrosive to a flourishing life. It erodes our ability to flourish. Verse 13, consider, think about, meditate on, put your thinking cap on, use the brain God gave you, use your head for more than a hat rack, think about it, consider, slow down. The work, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Who can make straight? Here's the reality. The world is this way because God has bent it. Now it was our sin that caused it, our rebellion, but God did it. God cursed creation For Adam and Eve's rebellion and now creation itself and all mankind is bent. We're literally crooked. Now, you can fight this reality all you want. You can push against it. You can close your eyes to it. You can argue with God, but it's not going to get you anywhere. It's like going on top of a roof and arguing gravity. I don't like it. I want to fly. Who are you to tell me I can't jump off this building? (laughs) Reality? Hello, I'm Earth. Have we met? (laughs) About to meet him. Right? Listen, but we do. We push against it. We fight against it. We rebel against it. This is the way of the world. You can fight, you can scream, you can shake your fist, or you can approach it with gospel optimism in the way that God has prescribed, the way of wisdom. I don't know what's right maybe in this situation, but I know what's better. 
Or you can be the fool and just try to escape from life under the sun. One more romance novel, one more Netflix show, one more trip around the sun, wasting it in foolishness. See, the fool cannot come to terms with this reality because he is always right in his own eyes. That's another proverb. The fool is always right in his own eyes. So he can never stop and go, maybe there is something wrong with me. It's always out there. Solomon says, no one can make straight what God has made crooked. So, here is Solomon's prescription for the believer. Verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Here's Solomon's prescription. When things are going well in your life, thank God and rejoice. Rejoice in the good gift that he's given you and rejoice in the good giver of that good, the gift. Enjoy the giver and enjoy the gift. But in the day of adversity, when things aren't going well and you don't know what's going on in your life, when trouble comes knocking at your door, this could be any number of things. Anything we would say is a bad day. Solomon says these things are sent to us through the hand of God and we should consider him in that rea- and that reality in the moment. God is infinitely good and beyond figuring out. So if he is good and he does good and he has All the information that I'm lacking. Do you ever think about that? God has all the data in the universe. He knows exactly what I need to get me where he wants me. He knows exactly what's good in my life. He knows if I need the harsh word or if I need the kind word. He knows if I need the demotion or the promotion. He knows if I need to live here or there. God knows exactly what I need and whatever is coming to my day today was hand delivered by God for my good with all the data in the universe at his disposal. We often talk about, there's this thing out there called the butterfly effect. If you could go back in time and change like one thing, we've seen these movies, change one thing and it has this domino effect that changes a million things. God has all of that in his mind. God knows all of that. He knows exactly when you need a red light and when you need a green light. Have you ever just had to stop and pause for that? You've been late. It's coming up twice now. You've been late to something, that red light, you're losing your mind. God's in heaven's like, patience is better. He knows exactly what you need in this moment. And even though what on the day of adversity, what is coming my way is bad, and we say it is bad, God is going to use it for some good, some way, somehow. And in the day of adversity, even though it's difficult, and it might take weeks or months to be able to do it, we need to consider that. Now, anytime someone says what I just said, my reaction typically is you don't know the pain that I've went through. You don't know how difficult, the day of adversity for me wasn't just losing my job or something. Like losing a loved one, losing a friend. Right? I remember my best friend in life, you know, he's, in the a young man fit, we're planning to go camping that weekend, taking our young wives, we're going camping, it's gonna be a great time. And all of a sudden I get a phone call, my buddy 
dropped dead on the tread treadmill that day at lunchtime. Nobody understands it. You're telling me that is a gift from God? The day of adversity is meant for good? Now, I can't tell you how God works that out for good. I don't know. I don't have all the data in the universe. He does. So when I say like, when I hear this, oh, just consider in the day of adversity, I, I push back against that. But then I, I, I want to go to Jesus. I want to go to Jesus because Jesus is Jesus gives us a picture of how we're meant to live. Jesus gives a picture of what it lo looks like to live a good life under the sun. And when we look at the life of Jesus, we see both things that Solomon's telling us here. Jesus knew how to enjoy the day of prosperity. His very first recorded miracle was done at a wedding in Cana. Jesus took, this is, I love this. If you're, no, I'm not going to. Jesus took six stone water pots that were filled with water. They were 25 gallons each. And when the party ran out of wine, Jesus turned this water into wine for the party. This was his first miracle. Jesus brought 150 gallons of wine to the party. I'm inviting Jesus over for dinner. <laughs> Back the truck up over here. Right? 150 gallons of wine. And, and this wasn't Boone's Farm. You know, this wasn't that box stuff. Okay? The master of the feast said this. After he tasted it, he said, this is the best wine. You saved the best wine for last. Jesus brought literally the best wine to the party. So he, he knew how to enjoy. He knew how to help other people enjoy. Psalms tells us that God gave us wine to gladden the heart of man. Jesus is okay with that. But Jesus was no fool. Guys, we all love the party. We all love that. We all love weddings. Well, that's not, maybe not all of us. Many of us like weddings. But listen, don't get trapped in the wedding life. Don't get trapped in the party. And don't get trapped in only the good. Jesus didn't spend his days at weddings every day. He didn't spend his days avoiding responsibility and escaping from reality. In the day of his adversity, he considered. He was prepared to go through the most difficult and emotionally trying experience any person has ever gone through. No one has hurt like Jesus. No one has felt abandoned like Jesus. No one has suffered spiritually, relationally, physically like Jesus. And the gospel writer records for us what this looked like for Jesus. Jesus is praying on the Mount of Olives the night before his crucifixion. He's experiencing, listen, so much inner turmoil, anxiety, emotional pain that the capillaries on his face burst and he begins to bleed from his sweat gland. He's bleeding drops of blood or sweating drops of blood. And he says in this moment, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. So he's not tiptoeing through the garden like everything's good. It's sent from God. Woo! All right, he delivered crucifixion today. I'm going to rejoice in it. No, he's saying, oh, it hurts. Oh, it's painful. Oh, I don't know if I can handle it. But he says, Father, if you're willing, remove it, remove it, take this from me, take this pain, take this experience. But then he says this, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. See, in the, day of in the day of prosperity, Jesus was joyful. And in the day of adversity, he considered, considered the work of God. He considered the story of God. God has made the one as well as the other. And people often ask me, why has God allowed this day of adversity into my life? And I, I got the same answer every time. I don't know. I don't have that data. But I do know this. It is not because he doesn't love you. It's not because he's not in control. 
It's not because he's not powerful enough to stop it. In fact, think about this. Why did God allow the day of adversity into Jesus' life? See, by allowing suffering into Jesus' life, God is also, he's, God's allowing it. God, by allowing suffering into Jesus' life, God is also allowing suffering into his own life. God is willing suffering into his own life. Jesus and the Father are one in God. They've never been separated. They've never had a bad day until the crucifixion. God willed himself to have a bad day, to have the day of adversity. Jesus, who deserved only joy, only blessing, only peace, only prosperity, was brutally tortured, murdered, and cut off from God. Why? Ask yourself, why? In the day of adversity, ask yourself, why did Jesus suffer? Because God loved us. Jesus took our place, what we deserve because of our sin, wrath and condemnation, and cut off from the life of God. Jesus received. See, his day of adversity on the cross was used to make us right with God. His day of adversity became our day of joy. Our day of joy, our day of rejoicing, in order to open up for us the possibility of true prosperity. Life lived close to God and in right relationship with Him. As I close here, see, none of us, none of us can straighten out what God has made crooked, but God can, and Jesus did. Jesus accomplished it on the cross. And when we choose the path of wisdom, listen, look at, here's the path of wisdom. Sometimes I don't understand this myself. The path of, the path of wisdom leads us along a path that causes us to stop and consider that work often. That's what funerals are for. thinking about the day of our death that's to cause us to consider the work of God consider the story of God the day of sorrow why is the world like this oh yeah it's been cursed oh yeah Jesus is redeemed oh yeah God is making all things new when the wise rebuke us oh yeah I have a lot of foolishness still in me and I need to stop and remember, I'm not perfect. I'm still broken. I'm still crooked. And God is making me straight. Thank you for this moment to consider. Taking the slow and wise path instead of the shortcut of fools. Just the fact that God made patience a virtue is frustrating. Really? Think about it. The only way to develop patience is by waiting. It's like, he's going to lead me for, to the most incompetent person at high V just to develop patience in me. You know, you're measuring, you're looking at items, checking items, how many people we got, all right? You're choosing that really efficient aisle. God's just like, computer problem. Runs out of paper. Oh, consider. Consider. Listen, all of this is meant to get us to consider the story of God and develop wisdom. And listen, this morning, as we come to the Lord's table, that's what this is meant to do as well. He says what? Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. 
When we come here every week and we come to the table, we should consider two things. We should consider one, Christ died to give me this. Christ died to make me new. Christ died to help to make me know God. Christ died to help me walk in wisdom. Christ died so that he could renew the world. And also, I'm going to die. This should be a, a sobering reality every week. Let me pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for the teacher, the philosopher, Solomon, who's causing us to ask good questions, causing us to look at our life maybe in a new way, causing us to step into reality and not escape it. Even though so many in our culture today are escaping and escaping and escaping and escaping, one day we're going to die. And one day we'll stand before you and on the day of our death, it's too late. There is no repentance post-mortem. I pray that you would give us the grace in this moment to put all of our trust onto Jesus Christ, the one who experienced the day of adversity willingly, co-conspirator with God. Yeah, I'll do it, he says. The Father and the Son and the Spirit plan this day of adversity for the Godhead so that we could have the ultimate eternity and prosperity. Father, I pray that you'd give people this morning that we're not saved by our wisdom. We're not saved by our wisdom. We're saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We're saved by transferring our trust away from ourselves and onto you. I pray that you would grant people to put their faith in you. And once we do that, Father, you would give us the ability as a community to live as wise believers, to consider when we need to consider and to rejoice when we need to rejoice. And so I pray this morning that we would search our hearts before we come to the table. The night that you were betrayed, you took the bread and you broke it and you took the, the, the wine and you said, of the bread, this is my body that's been broken for you. And of the cup, you said, this is my blood that has been shed for you. And Father, we eat and we drink in worshipful remembrance of what you've done. And we step into our future, we step into our tomorrow with a gospel optimism that trusts you and looks forward to the future in faith. Pray that you would grant us this by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.